Welcome to Lips on Life. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and in this interview series, I'm talking to extraordinary people who are living their dreams. It's my hope that their stories will inspire you to live your own dreams. Before I introduce my next guest, I actually want to take a page from her book. As I was preparing for today's interview with Nagin Farsad, my research led me to listen to her excellent podcast, Fake the Nation. At the beginning of an episode, Nagin asks her listeners to rate and review her show on iTunes. That struck me as a smart thing to do, and since the highest form of flattery is imitation, I'd like to take this time to ask my listeners to please do the same. If you have a moment, I'd be grateful if you'd rate and review Lips on Life on iTunes. Thanks for your consideration. Okay, with that out of the way, let me formally introduce my guest. I'm thrilled to be here with Nagin Farsad. Nagin is an Iranian-American Muslim comedian who believes that she can change the world through jokes. As I just mentioned, Nagin is host of Fake the Nation, which is a political comedy roundtable podcast. She's an author who wrote a book called How to Make White People Laugh and a film director and actress. And on a side note, after seeing the funny trailer for her film, The Muslims Are Coming, I can't wait to watch it. Nagin's been seen on Comedy Central, MTV, PBS, and more. She's a TED Fellow for her work in social justice comedy and has been named one of the top female comedians by Huffington Post. And we get to hear from her now. Nagin, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. With all of my guests, I like to learn about your background and get started from the beginning. And actually, I want to go a generation back. So where are your parents from, and then where were you born? So my parents are from Iran. Um, They met in Tabriz. You know that town. And they immigrated here with my brother. My brother's uh, much older than me. And um, they immigrated here when he was eight and started all over in in New Haven, Connecticut. And then I was actually born in New Haven, although I don't have any real connection to New Haven other than that I was born there um, because we ended up moving, you know, when I was a baby and and little stopover in uh, in Roanoke, Virginia. Of all places, why? Super weird. My dad was um, getting his like medical residency at Yale. And then one of his first jobs after he became a cardiovascular and thoracic surgeon. Yeah, he's he's a fan. He's a fancy uh, also uh, overachieving mother. Because that is, why do you need to have, all, like most people are a cardiologist or they're just a vascular surgeon or they're only a thoracic surgeon. You know, my dad is like, I'm going to get three different boards and like overdo it. Um, so anyway, so he was out there overdoing it. And, uh, and and one of his first jobs was in Roanoke, Virginia. It's just kind of like what happened. And I think when you're an immigrant, you're like, oh, that's great. Virginia, don't know, you know, there's 50 of these states. So this one sounds great. You know, you <laughs> Sort of are like, all I know is that America is full of dreams and hopes and wishes and in microwave ovens. Um, and so you sort of go. Um, but we ended up in Palm Springs. So I grew up in Palm Springs, California, which is weird because my brother, you know, he's so much older than me. He didn't live there ever and like has no real fondness for that town except for that his family then lived there. But the, the thing that kind of drove us to Palm Springs was that my dad had these like Iranian surgeon friends who were in Palm Springs, just one, I think who called him up was just like, dude, there are so many heart attacks. It's a retirement community. Like, oh you God. need to get over here. Like, there are so many hearts for you to operate on. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, I guess it's like every, you know, surgeon's wish to get that call. So we, we headed over. I grew up in a really ridiculous resort town. 
That sounds nice. Yeah, I mean, I at the time, I went through my goth phase in high school, and um, it wasn't really, it was like gypsy meets goth meets, like, Morsi fan. And I was just like, ugh, Palm Springs is the cultural armpit of America. Like, I just said stuff like that, you know? I didn't appreciate it at all. I mean, now when I go back, I'm just like, this place is real nice, you know what I mean? It's sunny, it's, like, relaxing, it's surrounded by mountains, and there's palm trees everywhere and it's just weird to grow up in the desert among the palm trees and the golf courses and and to grow up in a retirement community where there were no other kids to play with like all of that stuff is weird well there must have been kids right I mean there were kids yeah because like we you know I went to school blah 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 but like in the neighborhood where we moved there were no kids like my parents somehow picked the kidless neighborhood (laughs) of Palm Springs I mean they didn't somehow most of the neighborhoods in Palm Springs are kidless it skews old um, and gay and oftentimes old gay all of the the combination of stuff you know made me what I am today how so were you taken to comedy or to the arts as a young person did you always know you wanted to have a career in this I feel like everyone tells this story but I'll just tell it too which is I was really lucky I went to public school and we had a drama department and it was you know it was great even when I was younger like my mom put me in ballet classes I played piano for many years I was in a, a really super dorky musical theater camp we shared campgrounds with a bagpiping camp I think because of that really really have a fondness for bagpipes like I love a bagpipe let me tell you do you Uh, play no and I've always which is funny because when I was little like when I went to this camp and I heard this like I think I was 11 or 12 when I first went to this camp and I heard the sound of bagpipes and I had maybe never heard them before and I came back and I was like I really want to play the bagpipe and my mom was like no you're going to get fat cheeks so (laughs) so she put her foot down on account of the fat cheek issue that that she might be making up. Do bagpipers get fat cheeks? I don't know. <laughs> um, but I but it was otherworldly and it kind of makes you feel like you're in another country when you hear it. You're in Scotland or whatever. Uh, in general with all of, you know, with musical theater and with the the ballet and the piano and all that stuff was just like this kind of escapism and this kind of feeling like you're in some highfalutin world of like art artsy people or whatever, you know. So you took to it when you were young. Were you telling jokes as a young person? Was that just a part of your personality? No, I was actually like pretty much like a mute until I was like 14. I was really weird and awkward and I did talk. And I wasn't like I wanted to be president of the United States. Like I did a bunch of stuff that I viewed as extracurriculars that would look good on my college application, which I thought about since I was 11, which is very early to think about your college application. But like the minute I was in sixth grade, I was like, we got to get into an Ivy League school, y'all. And like, I was crazy. I mean, the real goal for me was to run for office, was to go into public policy, was to be a public servant. But I kept doing all of the art stuff on the side. I was in, you know, like I said, a great um, public high school and my drama teacher was excellent and uh, Rosemary Mallet um, I talk about her in How to Make White People Laugh in my book and what brought me out of the like being basically like 
mute was um, she cast me in this play um, called Once Upon a Mattress, for those of you who are musical theater fans. Uh, and she cast me as not Kitchen Wench number one or Kitchen Wench number two, but Kitchen Wench number three. And uh, and I feel like I really brought it as Kitchen Wench number three. Uh, but I, and it was one of, it was the first time in my life where I went on stage and we had this huge auditorium. I mean, Palm Springs High School is really remarkable. Um, and it, it, we had this like thousand person auditorium and it was like packed for the show and I did my bit and everybody's laughing and I felt in that moment like, oh my God, I could say anything right now. And they'd listen because I just made them laugh so hard. And uh, and it was just like this moment. And then I filed it away. It's not like something I really thought about. It, then I was just like, oh, I'm like addicted to that laughter. So I'll keep, you know. And so then I was the girl that was always like, like gunning for the theater, the, the comedy parts and stuff, um, the comedic relief and whatever. I think if you really get the feel of that laughter early on, it becomes like an addiction, you know? That's certainly what happens with stand-up comedians. So you graduate from Palm Springs High School and you go to college. Where do you go and what do you study? Um, I went to Cornell University in upstate New York um, because Harvard and Yale rejected me. It's fine. I'm totally over it. We don't even need to talk about that. Um, but no, I, I was I was really excited to go to Cornell. And I was like, no, 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 I'm a government major. I'm serious. Like, this is serious. Um, but then I ended up being a double major with theater. The thing that really, like, stole my heart was the college sketch comedy troupe. It was called the Schizophrenics um, because every college sketch comedy troupe has to have a name like that. And, and it was it was like the most meaningful thing I did those four years. You know, I, I, I really loved every moment of it. I took it so seriously. We worked on shows and, and characters. And, and I, I mean, I, I, you know, we wrote scripts and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote and practiced and performed and it really gave my my time there like meaning it felt like that's what I should be doing even though I kept saying to myself no no no, I'm a government major and this is all just for the fun and like later on I'm gonna be real so where did you go to graduate school and uh, was it right out of college yeah I mean I basically went right out of college I had like a little it brief jaunt in Paris where I was waiting tables and teaching English and like you know doing that kind of thing I would love to do that like at this age I can't believe how fearless I was then to like go and waiting tables in French I think is like a particularly scary thing I, I'm almost shocked that I did it but anyway uh, do you have any good stories cuisine and dining in France are serious you know I wasn't allowed to write down orders and so I had to memorize everything you know that and they'd all be saying I'm speaking French as a second language or um as like technically a fourth language and um <laughs> what other ones do you speak well I speak Farsi because I'm Iranian so I grew up with Farsi and the other language that they speak in the area of Iran that my parents are from is um Azadi the it's a Turkish dialect and what they speak in Azerbaijan as well so I'm speaking French and then you know and it's not my first language and I'm like 
schwitzing and like p- trying to memorize these orders and there'd be like parties of eight and then they're all doing these like prefix menus and there's like multiple like combinations of things and it was it was just horrible and then every and I was always assigned to the upstairs room so I was always like carrying these like heavy dishes up the stairs and I always thought I was gonna fall that for dessert they had this option of having like three different scoops of ice cream and they could choose from like 12 different flavors but you couldn't write down the order right and so then I would get I know I'd get these tables of six and they would each order this ice cream thing in their prefix menu and it would be like chocolate you know vanilla strawberry and then the next one would be like pistachio vanilla chocolate you know what I mean and I like and I would lose my mind after a while I was just like I hate this job so much you know it's so stressful I can't um so I, I mean I don't remember I must have done it for like six weeks and then quit Dramatically, I like walked down the street. Like, I'm not coming back. You know, it was like one of those situations. But it actually strikes me that taking all of those orders from memory must have been good practice for the career that you're now in, for having to memorize well, you know. your lines from movies. <laughs> right, right, go with me here. <laughs> yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, but maybe it was like sharpening my skills. Yeah. So you went to Paris, you get back, and you go to where for graduates? I, I ended up going to Columbia's um, School of International and Public Affairs and getting a master's in public policy. But simultaneously, I got another master's in African-American studies. Um, So I kind of got a dual degree. When you're a member of like a really small, underpopulated ethnic minority, you sort of glom onto like the nearest large minority group that you understand, that you think, you know, and it's not like I ever, I, I, I knew that I wasn't black. I knew, you know, and in, in high school it was like the Mexicans, you know, and it's like I, I longed to be Mexican. Um, they had like a cultural standing and a, and a, um, a cultural standing that people understood, like people, like Mexican cuisine um, or bastardized version of Mexican cuisine that we eat in the United States. They had radio stations. They had, um you know, icons like Cesar Chavez, you know, and then and then similarly when I went to college, um, there were like no Mexicans as far as the eye could see in upstate New York. And so like that's when um, you know, like my black formation really began and I started studying the canon of black film and 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 again and this wasn't like one of those, you know, Rachel Dolezal situations where I was like, let me put on some bronzer and see if I can pass. Like, I was never, like, insane about it. I really kind of looked at it as, um, I think there's a particular social struggle in the United States. It's defined by um, African Americans not having a level playing field. And if we can sort that out, it's going to be, it's going to work for the rest of us. To the point where I thought like we, if we solve that, there'll be a residual effect on like other brown people. And uh, which is still probably the case, right? Um, and so, so I think that's what the pool was for me was, um, was I, I, I was like, I know the black struggle isn't my struggle, but eh, it's close enough, you know? That makes sense. Um, So leaving Columbia, did you still have aspirations to be in politics? Or where does the comedy part come in, in terms of pursuing it as a career? I mean, I, because like all during grad school, I was still doing comedy. And, you know, 
the people would be like, I'm going to go, like, you know, let's form this study group and, like, let's work together on this project or whatever. And I'd be like, that's cute, guys. I've got to go do a set downtown. So, like, I'll leave you to it, you know. Um, and, and New York is the perfect place to be for that. Yeah. So. I mean, and and I mean, it's it's also probably not – a coincidence that I only applied to schools in New York. I really only applied to NYU and to Columbia. And I was like, one of these has got to work or else I guess I'm not going to grad school. Like in the back of my mind, I think I was just like, I got to go to wherever I can still really, really do comedy. Because I was doing it the whole time here. I was, you know, I was doing, I was in sketch comedy troops. I was, um, I was doing stand up. I was running uh, solo shows. Um, and one, you know, one thing led to another and, in stand-up ended up sort of like rising above the rest of the forms because it was like the first thing I got paid in, you know? And it also, at some point, sketch comedy was just like, ugh, here's a cue sheet, here's the costumes, like, here are the props, oh, I want to kill myself. Like, they're just like, it was logistically difficult. But stand-up was really about just show up, um, test it out, like in a in a non-threatening open mic situation or whatever, like, you know, kind of lower status show and then and see if it works. And then like and then if it does, you know, turn that into the, a bit that you can really go on the road with or whatever that you could really do perform better venues with. And it was it, it you know, and it became like I said, it became addictive. Like I wanted to be up all the time. Because you wanted the feedback from the audience, because you wanted that feeling when you were on stage, because you were still kind of reliving that moment from Once Upon a Mattress in high school, <laughs> where you felt uh, like you could say anything in the end, I've people been, would respond. I've been <laughs> chasing that Once Upon a Mattress high my whole life. Um, yeah, I think you're always, you know, and, it, and it's interesting as a comedian um, that if you, you know, if you have a bad night. Um, you immediately need to go up again so that it could be, so that it could be supplanted by a good night. I mean, our memories are really short as well for for when there's a lot of laughter, and our memories are long for when there is none. You know, um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and so uh, it, it's and and also I think there's I think I can I can probably liken it to like a sports thing where I guess I don't know. <laughs> sports but I imagine that if you set a record for yourself and then you beat that record you feel great and then you set another one and you beat that one and you feel really great uh I think that's kind of you know that's it's very similar for comedians because we're just like I killed there was like a high density of laughter like can I do better than that you know um and so you're always kind of trying to to beat your own record so you said that it was the paycheck <laughs> that made you interested in pursuing stand-up comedy. Um, but tell me a little bit more about how you transitioned from this aspiration to be in politics to to doing comedy and, and what your first jobs were out of grad school. I ended up getting a job for the city as a policy analyst. And I actually was a policy analyst. And I would go into city council meetings and present numbers and findings and like that kind of thing. And I was fairly serious, although I was still doing, comp you know, still doing stand up at night. Um, and I, you know, and at a certain point, 
like it was clear that that though I love the work of a public servant and even though I believed in it and I thought I thought that like my job and the people that I worked with were really like noble and doing good things um I just like wasn't happy in that environment because uh, the real work is very detail oriented you know the real work of crafting policy that affects people's lives like that work is very detail-oriented. It's not about soaring rhetoric. It's not about campaigning. Like It's like about sitting down and crunching numbers. And so when you're starting out, you're doing that for a very long time. I mean, or, or you should be. It was just clear that I, you know, that comedy was drawing me in. And I ended up uh, like leaving that job and, try, and had to figure out how, quickly how to like you know, sustain myself and earn a living um, as a comedian. And I think in the early days, I was just like hustling to get whatever I could. I taught myself how to edit. I started like directing small things. And then like people would be like, I need a director for this. I'd be like, I can do it. And this, you know, and and I I didn't technically know how to do any of these things. But I developed enough skills just like being a stage performer and writer that I felt like I could do a lot of these other functions. You know, there a lot of them have this kind of like these crossover skills you know so I was and I'm always I've always been drawn to like various medium I don't feel like oh I'm a stand-up comic so I can't direct movies or like I you know I'm a I, I, I direct movies so I shouldn't be an actor or you know I worked or write books or whatever I've always just weirdly wanted to do and they are all related you know there's a theme that runs through all of the work and there's um and 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 comedy is obviously a, a big part of everything. I just kept like I think the projects that that come to me just end up being whatever I'm like excited to work on, um, you know. And and um, you know. And most recently, I sold a script uh, for a, a TV series. Um, don't worry. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. They they bought the script. They decided not to make the show. So there's not there there. So there's a. Just a small pat on the back for that one. You know, this is a process. It's it's ongoing. Um, and I and I think it's just like everything I grew up on. You know, I grew up. I was addicted to television and movies and books. And uh, less so was I addicted to books. But um, you know, I I and I saw myself being involved in every aspect of them. You know, probably deep down in some ways. So you talk about a theme. Uh, tell us about your theme and what you're trying to communicate through your comedy. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that like was really upsetting to me as I as I decided to leave um, politics was, you know, that the job of a comedian was so narcissistic and self-serving and I didn't want to be narcissistic and self-serving. I, like I really wanted to try and change the world, like in the dorkiest sense. That's really what I wanted to do. Early on, like some of my first jobs were like, and this is, yeah, this is like 2009 um 2010 I got a job um writing at MTV and another one um directing and writing at Comedy Central and like another one at Nickelodeon and so like I have been asked to write jokes about Justin Bieber's abs and I have been asked to write uh jokes about One Direction and I have done all of the like things that you're like I mean I'm not sure what my Justin Bieber ad joke is doing for the world. You know what I mean? To better the planet. Um, but uh, so I've done all of these things. But I think in order to kind of like sleep at night, I kind of um, cooked up this notion of social justice comedy just for myself, just that I would do things that were um, 
comedic, but like, you know, helped kind of uncover issues and um, change the dialogue um, and, and raise social awareness around various things. In 2010, I was working on healthcare stuff, uh, like trying to help, um, you know, a satirical approach to healthcare reform and, and, uh, and, and um, satirizing the resistance to reform. I did bits on big banks and, um, and offshore banking. I went to the Cayman Islands with a fellow comedian, Lee Camp, and we basically um, went to the Cayman Islands to investigate offshore banking um, and also to like try and open up a, a secretive offshore bank account with our disposable income of $8.36. You know what I mean? So these are the kind of things that we would do, these kind of street action um, things that, you know, the, the kind of thing that get you always almost arrested, you know, <laughs> like the kinds of things that you're almost always, you're like, they're, they call security and you're like, okay, I'm leaving. You know what I mean? That's, I feel like I've done umpteen videos, um, like that. And, and then when it seemed like Islamophobia was really like not, going away, um, which it always felt like it was maybe going away. It was always it always felt like, look, 9-11, it's, you know, it happened eight years ago, it happened nine years ago, it happened 10 years ago. Like, it, it kept feeling like this is the moment where it goes away. Um, there, something would happen and then it would come back or, like, there would be some kind of outrageous remark and it would come back. And I think where it really crescendoed was during the Park 51 controversy at the Ground Zero Mosque. Um, thing where the the stuff about Obama being a Muslim, the stuff about um, you know the Sharia law taking over and people passing legislation banning Sharia law, like ridiculous stuff, and that's when I joined forces with another comedian, Dino Bidala, um, to make the movie The Muslims Are Coming, and we you know we basically took a bunch of Muslim American comedians in a nonviolent way, and uh, we took them around the country and we did these shows and we called the shows The Muslims Are Coming, and you know we were in places like Arizona and like. Alabama and like Mississippi, you know, we were among uh, waffle houses and potential hatred. Some people were like, aren't you scared? You know, and I was like, I, I don't know. I, I, I never was. I thought, I think I have this, um, you know, I'm a short lady who dresses like a cartoon character kind of uh, like who's going to do, what, what is someone going to do to me? You know what I mean? Um, and so I think especially with some of those more like intense things that we did out there on the road. Um, we, you know, I was never I, that fear. I didn't have that fear. Um, and so, you know, it enabled to go into some hostile territory and feel like, oh, it's going to work out just fine. Um, and, it, and it did by and large. And like some things, you know, didn't. Uh, and then we turned it into a movie and there's um, people uh, like John Stewart and um, how did you get John? By the way, you have all this incredible list of yeah, yeah. stars that are part of this film. <laughs> you got Louis Black and John Stewart yeah, and yeah, all this, yeah. whole list. David how Cross and Janine Garofalo. You know, yeah. and it's just out of control. I, I know. I am still shocked by by the star um, star studded lineup of comedians that we got to be. And the Muslims are coming and to say hilarious things about Islamophobia. I mean, they're great. Um, but John, you know. Uh, you know, little known fact, I've been rejected by The Daily Show a few times by and 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 once, in fact, by Jon Stewart himself. And so and he was really nice about it. Always really nice. And I think part of like, I don't know, I, I don't know, but maybe part of the reason like he agreed to do it. 
besides the fact that his heart is in the absolute best place and actually cares about these issues and has shown us that with, uh, what was it, 17 years of The Daily Show, um, something that really did change the, the discourse in the United States. Um, so besides that whole thing of, like, he's a true activist, uh, I, I think he was just like, I feel bad because I rejected her for a job. <laughs> Stop it. Did you, I mean, do you write a letter to these people? Do you oh, call it's a their whole, agents? Like, do you, it, oh my God. Personal it's, connection? It's all a whole, yeah. It's like personal connections. Who do I know that could possibly is the the woman who manicures the lady who, you know what I <laughs> right. mean? It's like it's like these ridiculous. Um, and then I think, you know, the other interesting thing that people may not realize about the New York comedy scene is that like you're a low-level comedian and you're walking into a club or a, an alt room or whatever and you're performing with people who are like really at the top of their game and and they're nice people like they're human beings you know what I mean and you could just approach them <laughs> and so that's what happened with half, with half of those people um, is like you know it's like we could just approach them um, and be like hey would you would you do this hey great set by the way uh, those mozzarella sticks look great listen um, do you <laughs> want to be in my next movie you know so speaking of next um, what are you working on now and what's next for you and does it have anything to do with um, the administration of our <laughs> new president well the funny thing is like I did something with my most recent movie um, was a departure from all of this other stuff because it's it's called Third Street Blackout and it's a romantic comedy. I mean, I may and it came out a few months ago and it's it's on Amazon and iTunes and all that crap and uh you know and it it opened in a few select cities. Um, and it's a romantic comedy like starring like Ed Weeks from the Mindy Project for Mindy fans. Um, Janine Garofalo's in it, John Hodgman's in it. Um, it is maybe I want to go ahead and say the only romantic comedy that has the distinction of having an Iranian American. Muslim lady as the lead. <laughs> so for that reason alone, you should see this movie. But yeah. it's um, set in the blackout after Hurricane Sandy in New York City, which was like a magical time where you had to like not use your cell phone and meet your neighbors and actually make eye contact with them. And it, you know, a lot of blackout babies were born um, as a result. And uh, you know, and I had a, 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 a rom- I had some romantic canoodlings at the time, um, which became that felt like the basis of a movie. And in fact became the base of the, this movie uh, that relationship oh, so it's real I like lived on Third Street um, the entire like East Village of New York City is represented in this movie in in absolute um, accuracy and authenticity like everyone there's people in, in the movie that live you know that are the neighbors that are the shopkeep owners like it's um it's it I we really wanted to make you feel like you were there um, and I think you do feel that way um, and so that's a fun movie that I think it's kind of like the kind of thing you really need in a self-care way during this upcoming um, administration. Um, one of the things that I, I feel like, you know, is an ongoing effort of mine is to, is you know, I'm going to keep putting out episodes of Fake the Nation, the podcast that's on the Earwolf Network. And every week we try and like tackle this administration to figure out how to talk about it, you know? How do we even um, talk about even... uh, And comedically, it's always me and two comedians. um, But, like, how do we, like talk about activism and what is our role as citizens and like what, what can we do and I, I want to kind of feel like we can parse the news distill it and talk about the important stuff you know and and because it's there's so many tweets <laughs> from uh, who I like to call um, 
the popular vote losing uh, minority president Donnie Twimp is how we refer to him on Fake the Nation. Um, so there, Donnie Twimp does a lot of tweeting and it's uh, hard to read through the garbage, the piles and the mounds of just junk that he puts out. Uh, so I feel like we're, I'm going to do that. Um, and I'm going to keep working with organizations like MoveOn.org uh, and putting out videos. You know, one of the things that we did when when Donnie Twimp um, called for a ban on Muslims, you know, is I, I said, okay, well, if we're going to do a ban on Muslims, we need to know who the Muslims be. So I went on the streets of New York and I, um, I did a, a religious test that I called the Bacon Test. And I walked around and I asked people, like, are you Muslim? And then if they said no, I would say, prove it. And they'd have to eat from this cold pile of bacon and then then if they didn't eat from the bacon of course they'd have to sign a muslim registry um which looked a lot like a like a bridal registry and had like cute flowers on it or whatever except for like instead of getting like a crock pot you would get like a like a lifetime supply of um surveillance but like i said i do these kind of like ridiculous street actions and these things where you're like okay the security's coming i'm leaving um and that's i i do a lot of that and i i think i'm gonna end up doing a lot more. I mean, uh, there's a lot of ridiculous policies. And one of the things I like to do in the way that this kind of bacon test illustrates is like take a policy and test it to its logical limits. Um, what would it really look like, you know, um, because maybe that way we can see how absurd it is. Mm. Tell me a little bit about what it means to be a TED Fellow Mm. and how that came up and how you are incorporating your work as a comedian into the fellowship. Is it related to what you've been talking about during the interview or is it different? What does all this mean? Um, I mean, so yeah, TED has this really amazing fellowship program and you apply and it's a whole thing and then they bring you to the conference and you can give a talk and, um, and their whole goal is really to find people who they think their voices need to be amplified using like the TED Talk. Talks, incredible platform, um, oh. which is great, by the way. I, I go go online and listen to Nagin's TED Talk. It is excellent. Oh, I highly <laughs> recommend it. So so go, but go on. Thank you. <laughs> and I think what was really remarkable about them bringing me was that they and they knew like what my talk was going to look like. And it's it's a TED Talk that's an earnest TED Talk about um, you know it's a taxonomy of haters and how I deal with them. Um, but it's also like mocking uh, the very PowerPoint presentations that are the backbone of TED Talk. You know what I mean? Because I have like fake charts and graphs, and it's ridiculous. So, um, and it's I, great. <laughs> and I th- and I think it's like a hallmark of a, of an organization that like can you know can take a joke um, and is really really smart about like knowing that also like this is a cultural touchstone and you know um, parroting it is a sign of love and a really powerful way of getting a message across. I mean, the, you know, over a million something people have seen um, this talk and I'm, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just like shocked. I'm still like, stunned that they lowered their standards enough to like include oh, me. No, stop, but for real. Stop. But for real. No, but for no, real. you're fabulous. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about how people react to your comedy. Do you ever get uh, responses that are difficult or that you didn't expect or 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 is everyone um wonderfully responsive and they appreciate and enjoy it no no i mean i, I mean i've gotten you know death threats or whatever um really? yeah i From mean whom? like I think, why like, just being a human on the internet like generally means you're gonna get a death threat at some point but i actually like I, I i mean i've gotten a death threat over voicemail which to me is what really rises to the level of death threat because they had to like figure out how to 
call you. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That was that's I think my Did they say specifically what it was in response to? Was it they, a, it was actually it was actually like uh on a family member's voicemail and they were like, I'm gonna kill you, I'm gonna kill your I'm gonna kill your daughter. We know what she does, blah blah blah. Um What do you do when yeah, something like that? It happens? Was, but yeah, it's really a pan it's I mean I actually told uh, you know, an organization, the Muslim advocates, like, just, hey, what do I do? And they were like, well, you know, um, and Muslim advocates is great. They deal with a lot of these types of things um, and have been since 9-11, uh, you know, because there's been, you know, obviously a spike in hate crimes. There's a spike in hate crimes, like, a lot. There was a spike in hate crimes with the sentence of Donald Trump. And um, so, you know, you're you're to alert your local uh, police just so they have a record, just so we all know that this is happening. And if it happens more than it's like, you know, luckily um, – just just once on on that platform so you know i think other death threats that are more like email or tweet or like facebook or youtube oriented are like probably just trolls and less serious um you know but and i've you know i've been protested uh like i got it i was in washington state doing a show and they protested my show because i think they thought i was going to convert people to islam which is hilarious like i, I don't even know how to do it uh <laughs> but um you know and so i I've, i feel like i do I, you know i i get like I think it's it, it's interesting to me because it's like I'm just doing <laughs> – ultimately, I'm doing comedy, you know. Um, and Does it ever deter you? It doesn't deter me. It makes me sad. So it makes me stop and be sad for a minute or whatever. I'm a human being. Like, it sucks when people are mean, you know. Uh, it's real sad. Um, but then it kind of generally just increases my resolve to keep doing it. To lighten the mood a bit, uh, why don't you tell us one of your favorite jokes? Oh, well, I'm going to tell a joke that I don't really do because it's like one of these jokes that are like, you know, you insist on it working and it never really works. And you just like, I'm not a one liner person. And this is like a one liner kind of joke. Comedy is so hard. Like sometimes I just really want to quit and like open um, a cop friendly falafel joint and call it homicide. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so stupid. So stupid. I know. I know. See, that's why you got to just kill yourself after you write a joke like that. <laughs> no, that that's funny. Can we hear more of this and see what you have stand up gigs coming up? Um. You, oh, so I think like if you want to see me do my thing, um, I'm actually going to be at the Armory, the Park Avenue Armory in New York City, uh, February 19th. That's the only date that's, that I have in my head. All other dates are going to be on NagimFarsad.com. But I think you should subscribe to Fake the Nation, the podcast. Um, by the book How to Make White People Laugh. Watch the movie Third Street Blackout and the movie The Muslims Are Coming. Um, and uh, yeah, and, uh, and and tweet at me or whatever. And how do they do that? Where do they find you? <laughs> they can find me at Nagin Farsad, N-E-G-I-N-F-A-R-S-A-D. Awesome. This show is about living your dreams, and you have had such success at such a young age. So I'm curious, what advice would you have for young comedians that are looking to have this kind of success, to be a writer, to be a stand-up comedian, to be um, a director and an actor? What What do you want to yeah, share with them? I think I doubled up for a long time. I feel like I worked really long hours. I feel like I worked multiple days a week. I feel like I tried to compress time um, so that I can 
you know, start so I could be a professional already. You know, you have to spend a lot of time as an amateur and then until you can graduate into into being a professional. And so it's almost like think of like how um, pilots have to do like certain number of hours before they're considered a pilot. It's like a lot of hours or whatever, like something crazy. And like therapists have to do a crazy number of hours. It's like the same thing I think with when you're in the arts, you have to do a crazy number of hours before you can expect to be considered a professional and treated as such I think and um, it's just one of those things like you cannot be discouraged when you're putting in the hours and nothing's happening because it's just you have to keep putting in the hours I think that's excellent advice Um, Nagin Farsad thank you for your time today I've had a wonderful time speaking with you and learning about your background and I can't wait to see what else you have in store for us thank you so much oh my god thank you so much for having me this was fun this is Jessica Lips with Lips on Life thank you for listening we'll see you next time